This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Welcome to episode 12 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones of From the Depths of TV Help. And on tonight's show, uh, sorry, uh, let's start that over again. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones of From the Depths of DVD Help. And joining me, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer of Green Love Ramblings and Eastern Kicks. Hello, Edward. Nice to see you. It's been a year. I know we're a year, officially a year into this project, and it's been such a wonderfully varied catalogue of films that we've covered already. And I think that it only continues with tonight's selection. Um, as tonight we're going to be looking at Samuel Hung's 1989 film, uh, Pedicab Driver. And of course, with Valentine's Day on the horizon, we will also be looking at our favourite couples in Asian cinema. And Stephen is going to be giving us a rundown of his favourite romantic movies as well. So, I mean, when we obviously talk about romantic cinema, it's kind of like this grey area for Asian cinema fans because everyone can talk about like their favourite kaiju movies or kung fu or triad movies um, or even like horror films. And as soon as we mention romantic movies, everyone kind of like ums and airs about what movie you want to talk about, really. So, um, I mean, why do we have this grey area when it comes to romantic movies in Asian cinema? I think there's two broad reasons. One is, I reckon most of us Asian cinema fans are of the masculine gender and there is a love for the testosterone driven horror movie, action movie, blah, blah, blah. So there's a bit of that. But the reality is, that, and as one of the things I do over at Guelo Ramblings is look at other sorts of films, which is yeah. why I came up with a list. The other thing is, is that, um, uh, partially the, the, the rom-com is a little different because as we've spoken before, the, the, the humor doesn't always travel. But the other thing is in, in terms of romance itself, things are different standards, different tropes apply. Um, so I actually, I, I said, Oh yeah, I come up with five films. And then I realized some of them are so chaste as to be, you might not even notice it's a romance film. There's a lot of that going on in nation cinema. And the other thing is, some of them are frigging heartbreaking because the old sick girl trope is a really big, or, or, or sick boy trope is a really big thing. So I had to, I had to look quite hard to find films that were one of the two lovers didn't end up on the, um, mortician slab. So I think, <laughs> I think, I think it's, I think it's a mix of those two is that it's just, it's just different, um, in terms of taste but also incredibly popular you only have to look at the popularity of korean dramas to know that romance is big big out there but it's just not the sort of films that travel across because you know as i say we're we're interested in people hitting each other or long-haired ghost girls scaring the bejesus out of us it certainly seems to be the running theme um and it, as i say, i was trying to think of like romantic movies and it's every romantic movie I could think of is very non-traditional in the sense it'd be something like Chunking Express where we've got two very untraditional romance uh romances 
through both stories. Um, or like in the mood for love, where again you have this couple that are are essentially a couple, but they're a plutonic couple because they're drawn together because their relevant spouses are cheating on them, and for some reason this brings these two, this pair, this uh, pair together. And looking at it, it's a romantic movie by any means, but they just don't have a romantic connection as such, um, which makes it such an interesting sort of aspect to it um but yeah it was sort of like i was trying to think what are sort of traditional romantic movies and i i was just completely stumped so i'm really interested to see what you did come up with that Stephen. oh well tell me when you're ready <laughs> please i mean let's uh, okay. see what you what you recommend then if if people are obviously wanting to move away from like the testosterone driven cinema that we've uh, come to associate with asian cinema what what would be some lighter fare then Okay, well, I'm going to start with a kind of obvious one because it was actually remade as a Western film. This is the Korean film Il Mare, which um, isn't necessarily a straightforward romance. Um, it, like I said, it's a Korean film. It stars, um, uh, what's her name? Jan Ji Hyun, who's a uh, star of many films, uh, famously My Sassy Girl. And Lee Jung Jae, who's another face that appears in quite a lot of films in the sort of the, the early 2000s golden age of uh, Korean cinema. And what makes it special is it's a, it's a bit of science fiction, I suppose, in a way. Um, there's a guy and there's a girl and she lives some years in the future. And they 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 communicate and fall in love through letters passed through a post box, which enables them to uh, share things over time um so they don't actually really meet until the very end but it's yeah it's a, it's a very romantic film i think um and is representative of like i say a golden age of korean cinema next up is something a bit similar so they're, they're all a bit weird these films i've just realized but they are they are romantic films at heart um the next one is japanese film from 2005 I think and it's uh, Nobuhiro Doi's Be With You um, it's about a guy and his child and a wife and the wife dies as the film starts um, and it's all a bit sad to begin with and then this mysterious woman appears in the woods like a blank slate and through their relationship with her he lives and explains the the depths and how how him and his wife met and the, and how their love grew and then it sort of turns out that maybe the woman in the woods is the wife from another time it sounds a bit complicated but it's a really touching and sweet and eventually sad film but about the nature of love so i think that's a that's another one another sort of a weepy romance film then i'm going to go back to Hong Kong to a romantic comedy and this one is My Wife is 18 which sounds well, it's got a bit of an got a, got a bit of an icky premise really but it, yeah. it stars <laughs> it, it stars the King of Wood um, Ekin Cheng and um, one half of the uh, twins canto pop group Charlene Choi um, basically he's a 30 year old man his grandmother says he's got to get married 
and she basically arranges a marriage with this young, spunky, 18-year-old schoolgirl, Charlene Choi, um, because arranged marriages were the thing back in the grandmother's day. Um, they agreed to do it as like a marriage of convenience, you know, that they'll just live together for a year, no sex, no touching, just, just to shut her up, really. But of course, over the ensuing year, the pair fall in love. And we actually produced 10 years later a sequel called, um, well, either My Sassy Hubby or um, My Wife is 18 too, although she's clearly not 18 anymore. See, but I it's, thought you were going to say My Wife is 19 or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But it's a really charming Hong Kong comedy romance. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rom-com. The ickiness actually isn't as icky as it sounds. It was also remade in Korea as My Little Bride, starring Moon Gyun Young, who people might know as one of the um, two sisters in the tale of. Um, but yes, it's well, it's well worth hunting down. It's not as icky as it sounds. I mean, she is 18, not 12 or something like that. So, and and um, it, it works really well. And it's, it's a bit of a favorite of mine. The fourth one I'm choosing is Warner Brothers' first ever Chinese language film from somebody, I guess you know, Johnny Toe. Now, Johnny Toe is very famous for making hard-boiled Hong Kong crime dramas, but he supplements his his ability to make these these critically acclaimed uh, triad films with the odd romantic comedy. This one is called Turn Left, Turn Right, um, set in Taiwan. It stars Hong Kong chanteuse Gigi Lung, along with the always fabulous Takeshi Kaneshiro as a couple who are fated to be together. They actually live next door to each other, but they don't know it. And they, uh, they actually meet as children and then reconnect later on in life and all sorts of wacky, crazy, and let's face it, ridiculously staged events go on to drive them apart. But I really like it, um, and it's it's that kind of Asian film where the romance it gets frigging frustrating. Not that <laughs> they can't get together and get it on; they keep making stupid moves. But yeah, it's really worth um, checking out, especially as it's a Johnny Toe film that people probably don't realise he does that kind of thing as well. And I'll finish off back in Korea, but this one's a documentary, and this one is called Planet of Snail. Now, Planet of Snail is a documentary about a Korean married couple. Um, there's a guy, Young Chan, who's deaf and blind since childhood, and his wife, Son- Soon Ho, who's got uh, a spinal uh, problem, which basically means she's like two and a half feet tall, so that you can imagine it's a kind of really odd couple kind of deal. Um, it's coloured by the fact that disabled people, especially in Korea, aren't particularly well looked after by society. What is this? This, this odd couple are just clearly deeply in love with each other and it's really it's really heartwarming and also at times frustrating um one of my favorite scenes in it is when she's trying to get him to change a light bulb because he's tall enough to reach but can't see or or hear um they have they have a mechanism of talking and she obviously can see everything but she's far too short to ever change the light bulb so they sort of work together as a team and it's a really charming touching documentary um probably don't see a lot of 
Korea or even Asian documentaries in our uh, in our normal watching, and I just want to highly recommend. And um, yeah, there you go. That'll make you feel better about life after watching that. Oh, very good. And yeah, it's. I mean, if anyone obviously wants to share their own favorite romantic movies, please do let us know either in the comments section or you can let us know on the Twitter, which is at AC Film Club. Uh, we are also on Facebook as well. Just look up uh, Asian Cinema Film Club and uh, let us know uh, your thoughts on favorite romantic movies. Um, now, since the last show, we've had some interesting releases come out. Uh, certainly on Netflix, we saw the release of the first of the Godzilla anime trilogy. And I mean, Stephen, did you watch this one or if you've not got around to it yet? I haven't got round to it yet, but I'm hoping you've seen it. I have. Um, now, so this is the first of a new trilogy of Godzilla movies, and they're all going to be anime. The next one is not going to be out until May, and this first one sees a really unique spin as Earth has basically been abandoned to uh, Godzilla and the other monsters of the world purely because uh, they were unable to defeat it, so humankind has abandoned Earth and unable to find a new planet to inhabit, they now return centuries later to Earth um, to essentially try and recolonize the planet, at the same time facing the prospect of battling Godzilla again. Um, the This is an anime which has sort of received sort of mixed feelings from a lot of people. Um, there's been a lot of pe- people, sort of the established fans who like it, uh, there's people who are new to the series who just really didn't get its appeal at all. Um, certainly for myself, I found it an enjoyable watch, even if being the first part of a trilogy it does have to spend a large portion of its runtime introducing a lot of characters and setting up the setting. And perhaps Godzilla does run a little, sort of walks a little slower than I would like. He's a little more plodding, but uh, certainly there's some wonderful animation there and the action scenes look absolutely fantastic as well. Um, I mean, have you any interest in seeing Godzilla as an anime or? Well, now, you know about me in anime. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just the cream I'm after. But on the other hand, over this podcast, I've started watching a lot of Godzilla films, haven't I? So <laughs> there is actually, actually, you know, it is, it is something I'm, I'm somewhat interested in seeing if, if the, 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 the critical reaction amongst fans is is good otherwise i'll give it a miss so you know if you're telling me it's worth my time then i'll trust you as the king of kaiju (laughs) as i wouldn't say it's like to watch as your first one i think it's certainly got some interesting ideas especially when it comes to like kaiju movies i mean it's always nice to see someone trying to do something a bit different than just Godzilla either stomps on Tokyo or Godzilla stomps on Tokyo while defending it from another bigger, badder monster. Um, so it's nice to see the future setting. Uh, the design works really good. And there's certainly some interesting ideas there. And I'm really interested to see where they go with the second film, um, especially with the the prospect of seeing Mechagodzilla return and to seeing what the design work for that's going to be like. Because the design for Godzilla in this one is kind of looks like he's made out of stone in places it's a lot more lumbering so whether they're going to speed him up or what's going to happen obviously um is really going to be interesting to see but certainly he's they've got the idea of this because they've been this force of destruction really nailed down and 
you certainly see that in this first uh, film, Monster, Monster Planet. And I mean, it's got me excited to see where the trilogy goes. Um, but at the same time, I can understand why it's not for all tastes, because it is kind of, as I said, it's a bit of a slow burn. Um, but when you view it from the prospect of, you know, this is a trilogy, it's a little more understandable. Um, also on Netflix, uh, Netflix have really snuck out to this one, and that's uh, The New Devilman, Devilman Crybaby. This is the latest reimagination of Gonagi's um, classic, if that's the right word, um, anime. Um, for those not familiar with Gonagi, he's really an anime artist, who, a manga artist who's heavily influenced by Splatter movies, and he's given us the likes of Geno Cyber, Violence Jack, and Devilman certainly being enough of his key titles. Certainly for myself as an anime fan, it was one of those entry titles, and it's unsurprising when you have look at the output of like the early 90s, and it was things like Devilman and Legend of the Other Fiend, that it's unsurprising that everyone had this assumption that anime was just all splatter and demons and schoolgirls and just like all these very corrupted ideas, and certainly Devilman didn't really do anything to really help uh, change that opinion for people who just sort of like stumbled into this one. Um, the concept behind Devilman basically is that it's set in a world where demons exist uh, under the surface of society, and certainly in Crybaby, you now have people who are trying to meld with demons to give themselves like greater physical advantages. Um, and in this one, the first episode that I have seen is basically reworks the OVA from the original series, The Birth. Um, as we see, um, we see um, Amon, our sort of hero of sorts, who's in this series, he's very emotional, like the slightest thing can set him off, and it just bursts into floods of tears, hence the crybaby of the title, and uh, we see him basically meld with the demon uh, Amon, who, when the two come together, they form Devilman, and him basically battling demons, and uh while I'm not at the moment completely sold on the animated style, which sort of, very, very sort of switches from like looking rather amateurish to looking absolutely stunning at the same time, um, I think it's a really interesting sort of take, and I'm interested to see where the rest of the series goes. And it's nice to see Netflix continuing to uh, back more anime projects, um, especially if we look at two years ago. They had what about six titles, and now they're stocking quite a good uh, selection of titles and even back in their own productions which is uh, always nice to see but I mean seeing you said I read you I mean you're not a big anime fan uh, can I I mean would you how do you feel the prospects that you may at some point be watching Devilman well actually after what you just said reading up about it actually I might be quite interested it's 10 episodes of 25 minutes that's not a huge investment of time mm. and I quite like the um I quite like the idea of the premise, actually. And not only that, <clears throat> but it's the fact it is a Japanese anime series, um, which I think is just sort of going on. You know, we, we've talked many times about services like Netflix absorbing other cultures um, and, and sort of giving Asian film and Asian culture another platform. And to actually take it with Japanese creators you know there's a dubbed and a and a subtitle version you know that so, so they're treating it with a bit of respect as well which i think can only be a good thing 
Yeah, um, I mean, for myself, I would recommend hunting down the original OVAs first, uh, which there were two. You had uh, The Birth and The Demon Bird. Um, for my, for myself, I still kind of prefer them. I don't know whether it's because I'm an old school anime fan or just because of the, I prefer the sort of animated style, but I'm really interested to see where they go with this latest incarnation of it. Um, as I said, it's such an interesting concept, and it's interesting as well to see them trying to push it and going with more risque titles like Devilman. Um, especially because Go Now Guys, he's such a his style of anime that anime uh, that was produced is so old school. It's it's kind of interesting to see these sort of old school style being brought back into more modern style because now we have when we look at uh, more modern anime, it seems to be very focused on, it focuses more on sort of uh, themes and ideas that are probably more popular with Japanese audiences than what was originally being brought over to appeal to Western audiences. So there was less now focus on the gore and the violence and sort of like the more action heavy titles. And it's interesting with a title like Devilman getting a Netflix back in that uh, we're seeing more seen anime sort of go back more to uh, the more violent, more action sort of a few titles. So I'm very interested to see where this obviously goes, not only in terms of series, but also uh, in terms of influencing taste as well. But I mean, Simon, I mean, is there anything else that's sort of been holding your interest at all? I mean, on the old uh, film watching side or? Um, yeah, so I will just mention one film that I... Um... I saw in the uh, in the inter episode abyss. Um, it's called the Inerasable, and I it's by who's the director? It's uh, Yoshihiro Nakamura. Now I saw his last film, which was called the Snow White Murder Case, which was a really smart thriller, um, based modern modern day, based based in the world of social media and fake news, I suppose. Before that was a thing. Um, <laughs> And this, I, I I knew it was this film, but I was expecting another sort of murder thriller, sort of cop sort of story. And it's a, it's a, I guess a horror mystery film. Um, it's the story of a mystery novel writer who sort of writes popular novels based on stories folklore stories and horror stories and ghost stories that her readers write in and she turns them into uh, into best-selling stories and one young girl writes to her and says oh something's happened in my in my apartment and it's all creeping me out a bit and then over time they, they sort of meet up and they find out all sorts of things have been going on in this apartment block in this area of development and so it, it sort of keeps going back and back and back and back into the past, occasionally changing film stock in, in quite a subtle way. But it's kind of like this loving homage to uh, Japanese horror movies, but of, of like the, the, the era of things like Ring and Grudge and things like that, but not in a horror movie kind of way. It's hard to explain. So it's much more of a thriller than a horror movie. But it's a really well-made, really interesting sort of loving homage to, horror, to Japanese horror, but done in the guise of a thriller. Um, it sat on my to-watch pile for about a year, and I picked it up. I thought, I'm going to finally watch this. wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but actually was really pleasantly surprised when I came out the other side. That's always good when you can still be surprised, especially when you're 
still familiar with uh, particular style uh, era of cinema, just to have something still surprise you, I think that's always a nice, nice thing, really. Yeah, I'm um, being a Japanese film, you know, maybe the production values aren't super, super fantastic, and um, you know, it, it, it's probably one for the bit more hardcore Japanese film fan, but uh, yeah, highly recommended. So it's called The Inerasable, if anyone wants to try and import it from somewhere. Now, obviously, as we mentioned already, I mean, we've got Valentine's Day is quickly approaching, and it's kind of an unintentional romantic theme that we have got for this episode. Certainly when we originally planned it, it wasn't planned with any sort of romantic elements, but certainly when we look at Pika, uh, Pika Driver later in the, uh, this episode, we obviously there are some certainly strong romantic elements there as well. And it got me obviously thinking, who are my favourite sort of couples in Asian cinema? Uh, so, I mean, I'm just going to run through my quick list here. I mean, I compile, these are my top five when it comes to Asian cinema. So, I mean, Simon, feel free to chime in with any of your favourites as well. Um, but uh, first off, we've got uh, Young Goon and Il Soon from I'm a Cyborg. I mean, one, she thinks she's a cyborg and he thinks he can steal souls. And the two form this very unique relationship in, in an insane asylum in Park Chan Wooks. How would you describe it? I mean, is it romantic comedy? Is this a fantasy comedy? I mean, how would you describe I'm a cyborg, but I'm okay? I, 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 funnily enough, it was it was in my next layer of films. It was one of the ones I was going to bring up. So it, it's it's a fantasy romance, I suppose. Um, I think it's I it's my actually whisper it. It's my favourite Park Chan Wook <laughs> film. I think it's it's it, it's glorious to look at. It's imaginative and it's got a real soul to it. And I do think sometimes Park Chan Wook's films lack soul. They're always technically brilliant and plotted fabulously, and they look great, great. Um, you know, and, and, and sometimes they're quite dark. Well, they're usually quite dark, but this is, this has got a, a bit of a, a strange premise, but it's a genuine heartfelt film. And yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a, that's a great choice. I mean, it was a film he made for his daughter, um, obviously coming off his vengeance strategy and perhaps wanting to do something a little lighter. And, uh, yeah, I think I agree with you. Uh, I'm a cyborg, but I'm okay. It's, it is different than his other films, uh, the same way that Stoker is different than his other films. But at the same time, even when he's not doing like the films like the Avenger trilogy, when we're looking at like Joint Security Area, there's just something about Park Chan Wook's films that are always so intriguing. I just love the interaction between these two characters, even though they're both completely nuts in their own wonderful ways. And perhaps it ends a little too open ended for some taste, but uh, I'm a cyborg, but I'm okay. Just the relationship between these two is just so charming. They, uh, that's why they made my list. But obviously, staying on uh, Park Chan Wook, my next selection would be uh, Wu Su Young and her husband from Lady Vengeance. Uh, this is a husband and wife team who are also bank robbers, and it's hard to say whether they're this, they're like Bonnie and Clyde and doing it just for kicks, or that they do it for, uh, a way to sort of fund themselves it's hard to say but certainly you have never seen a stronger romantic connection between two bank robbers than you have uh between these two and her husband's obviously responsible for providing the weapon of choice for our lady vengeance uh to carry out her weapon and also has one of the coolest tattoos in asian cinema with his many layered gun tattoo but um 
I just really the, just the connection when you see the flashback and you see them see them sharing this glance across um across a bank siege is just so touching every time I see it and it's really adds some depth to the fact that you have all these criminal characters who are providing our heroine with skills to carry out her revenge. And at the same time, they all have these elements of humanity too, and they're not all just heartless, hardened criminals. Um, and in, certainly in the case of Wu Tzu Young, it's very much the case. I mean, she said the hardest thing uh, about her stretch is the fact that she was separated from her husband, not the fact that she was in prison. And I think it's just really uh, kind of touching with these two. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I, I, I get what you mean. The problem with that film is I can't get away from how horribly dark it gets at the end. I think the first half of it, like you say, that with all the flashbacks and the, and the memories and things like that, it's a wonderful, joyous thing almost, isn't it? And then it, I mean, the, obviously there's the version of it where he literally drains the color out of the film. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I see where you're coming from, but I can't divorce it from the utter darkness <laughs> that comes later. I, did, I don't know. With Lady Vengeance, I mean, it's my favourite of the trilogy. And yes, it has obviously those dark moments, but I think I just see it in such like such a snapshot format. I mean, it's... I rarely view it as like a, a complete film in my, in my mind. It's always like these moments, um, such as like the parents lining up outside the room to take their turns take their turn in revenge or the guy screwing the axe head on on the pole um or just even when she's stalking uh, one of the guys who framed her and she's trying to work out the distance because of the range of her gun there's just so many uh moments that that i take away from it that i i i don't understand why i don't view it as the the one complete film like you do soon but yeah, it's just uh, this couple. Whenever I'm thinking of my favourite couples, then they're, they're certainly one. But um, the next question, I mean, this is a film we've obviously looked at and discussed it, discussed it on the show, and that's from Chunking Express. It's the second story, and that's the relationship between Cop 663 and Faye, um, a manic pixie dream girl of of Hong Kong, who apparently owns only two records, one being California Dreaming, which is played continuously throughout, but Faye takes it upon herself to try and improve uh, the life of Cop 663 by breaking into his apartment. And at the same time, he's trying to get over the breakup from his uh, hostess girlfriend. And just seeing this, as, when you first meet them, I mean, they're kind of a mismatched couple to begin with. But as it goes on, the connection that they share and the fact that they sort of switch roles by the end of uh, their story just makes it such a fascinating uh, relationship to watch. And it's certainly my favourite part of Chunking Express. I mean, as good as the first half is, I think it's always the second half is the, the story that I want to return to the most. Well, as, as we said in the um, in the episode, we talked about it. I mean, as, I'm sorry, as I said, if you don't fall in love with Fei Wong during the second half of that film, there's something seriously wrong with you, <laughs> whoever you are. Because, I know. Yeah, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, it's a, that's, that's, a, that's a glorious, although, again, a little bit twisted relationship, but it, <laughs> it all ends up right in the end, right? I think with, you, you may see a reoccurring theme with what I, I am a good I relationship am. I, here, so. I, remember, I remember being scared by what Zoe was going to bring up, but now I'm a bit scared about the state of your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> what kind of twisted stuff goes on in in your house in your household? I just do what I'm told. <laughs> that's that's basically what it what it what it is. So. And I think that's probably good advice for everybody. <laughs> I'm do what I'm told, and then you know I'm given the ability to amass the Asian cinema, which takes over my lounge, and uh, that's that's that works out well. Most traditional sort of slant. I mean, we mentioned this pairing already, and that's Chomo uh, Wan and Shu uh, Lin Zin from In the Mood for Love. Um, again, we have this uh, couple that their relevant spouses are cheating on them with each other, and uh, this pair are essentially drawn, brought together just from the fact that they're uh, they uh, they've got both got adulterous uh, spouses and. It's such a beautifully shot film, a film in the mood for love. It's also one of those films which is very hard to recommend because it doesn't sound overly exciting when you try and describe it. But it's an absolutely beautifully shot film and very emotionally engaging. Um, and one I would certainly recommend if you're looking for, obviously, a break from your usual sort of triad and J-horror and those sort of movies and looking for something a little more adventurous then I think In the Mood for Love is certainly a, a great great movie to uh, check out I couldn't agree more I, I always talk about that as probably one of the gateway films so if someone's interested in, in foreign cinema but they haven't maybe you know, maybe they've been into European cinema I always think In the Mood for Love is like that, that, that film that you can sort of give hey look here's some art house cinema beautifully shot um, impossibly attractive leads um the sound design is amazing uh, maggie chung is just poured into these amazing chong sam dresses um it fetish fetishizes smoking to a degree which is a bit wrong in the modern day <laughs> um but it's it, but it, it, it it's a smart and clever and it's touching but as you say utterly chaste relationship um so we will i will be bringing this to the table for us to talk about in more detail no doubt before this time next year okay um rounds out my list and still putting on the twister um uh, we've got shio and nuriko from battle royale this is a couple which it's hard to say whether it's more protective or whether it's an actual sort of genuine romance it's very hard to sort of say but certainly it's not the best of time that if you're planning on making a move on uh, your girl of choice, if your whole class has suddenly been drawn into a battle royale uh, situation by the by the government. The fact that we have this romantic angle, much like all the interesting little subplots within battle royale, makes it such a special movie and more than just this gratuitous gore fest that many critics of it would have you believe it is. Um, certainly it's a lot deeper than than, you know, just splatter and kids killing each other. Um, there's a lot of really interesting sort of subplots going through it, and I think this is why Battle Royale stands out as the film it is, and really has become such a sort of cool following. I think if it was just another splatter movie, I think we probably would have all forgotten about it by now, but the emotional content of it, um, certainly something that was missing from when we had the sequel, uh, Battle Royale 2 Requiem, it was certainly an element was, that I felt was missing is it focused a lot more on sort of the action element um, and some rather confused plotting but uh, Battle Royale really sort of manages to balance the elements of drama and 
with uh, sort of splatter and the action there. I mean, if we were to choose another couple from this film, we could also uh, look at uh, Hiroki and Keiko, who are probably the more tragic couple in the film, um, as he's obviously spends the film looking for this girl he's got feelings for, um, and only to obviously finally find her, and she accidentally shoots him. So, if we're obviously going for the stronger couple here, I think uh, we obviously have to go talk about Shuya and uh, Noriko, uh, just merely for not only being the heart of that film, but uh, just for just how uh, their sort of relationship rises one foot undercurrent to this uh, really interesting story. You can find love anywhere, right? You, you old romantic, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I get what you mean. And actually, I, I also say, you know, go go and try and find the English translation of the of the novel, which the film is based on, and you'll get a lot more of that. The the interrelationships of characters is even more important in the novel. So, uh, yeah, not where I'd have gone, but I hear what you're saying. You see, this just really says a lot about about the films I watch. I think this is the this is the book when you, especially for ourselves, because we only can watch what we're exposed to over here, and certainly with the labels that we have, I and mean, we've obviously got like Arrow, we've got Hong Kong Legends, we've got back releases from like Tartan, and kind of only can watch what they deem there to be an audience for. So it's kind of a bit uh, stemming, and occasionally you stumble across something like Mr. and Mrs. Player. Um, and it would be kind of nice, I think, just to see perhaps some of the more of these niche titles, but I suppose at the same time you've got to go with titles that you can sort of guarantee a return on your investment with, would you say? Yeah, I think you're probably right. <clears throat> and also I think, um, you know, in, in action and horror films, obviously a lot of what's going on is very visceral and isn't reliant on what's being spoken or what's in the subtitles. No, subtitled films are still not very popular over certainly in the UK, um, dubbed films, probably more so in, in, in the rest of Europe. But whereas a, a romance film probably is going to have a lot of talking, a lot of jibber jabber, a lot of actually awful lines, probably, <laughs> can be said. And so it, it probably doesn't work, which is possibly why you get things like the lake house, which I hinted at before, which is, you know, is an American remake with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock and whether it was good or not it was because there was this incredibly popular romantic film from Korea but you couldn't you wouldn't have got the same audience um they did the same with my sassy girl I'm sure they've done it with others and conversely lots of American romantic films get translated into Asian cinema um there's a version of Ghost for example (laughs) that was made in um Japan which is fairly good but you know you would think would be fairly redundant, but um, they went that way. So I, I think I think language and also just just the tropes. People in Asian films don't tend to jump into bed each other and have hot sweaty sex with the sheets just in the right place to stop you seeing anything. Um, they tend to hold hands at best by the end of the film. <laughs> I think. I mean, do we? I mean, we don't really have sex scenes in film anymore. It seems that with the invention of the internet, we kind of eliminated that from very subtly from the film watching experience we certainly have nudity but we seem to no longer have sex scenes in movies and i always remember it being a sort of staple of like when you're watching like uh late 80s early 90s sort of films that you'd be there'd always be like this really uncomfortable sex scene that 
you'd have to sit for because <laughs> you normally watch these things with your dad or something. Uh, oh, there'd always be there'd always be satin sheets and a glimpse of boob or maybe buttock, and that'll be about it. And uh, but I think I think you're right. I think the world, I think the Western world has become a bit anodyne, hasn't it, in regards to that kind of thing? Do you, I don't know. Is this this the invention? As I say, is this the invention of the internet? The fact that we can all access porn now that we don't need to watch it in our films anymore. They just no longer to need to the uh, need to sort of provide uh, saxophone players with a career option anymore. Well, may, 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 maybe if you want to be sociological about it, I suspect it's actually more that they want to sell the film to China, where that stuff doesn't go down very well. And uh, it's probably more a commercial decision than a, a sociological one. But that's me being cynical. Okay. I mean, is there any other sort of couples you would sort of name as your favourites at all? I don't know if any sort of spring to mind for yourself this year. I really can't think of any other than you know what I brought up earlier. Um, I have to agree with a lot of yours, although um, I discounted most of them. Let's <laughs> <laughs> leave it there. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, there we'll be looking at our feature film for this episode, which is Pedicab Driver. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, The Vern, and on each episode, myself along with a guest. We'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you. Because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great fits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy it. And we're back. You still, of course, listen to the Asian Cinema Film Club. Uh, if you haven't done already, please do hit that subscribe button or the like button if you're listening to us on the, the That Moment in Podcast Network or Podomatic or iTunes. You know, leave us some comments. Uh, hit, hit the subscribe button. It all helps. We are, of course, tonight talking about Pedicab Driver from 1989. This is a film directed and produced by Samuel Hung, who also stars as the main lead, Lo Tung. Uh, the film itself is set in 1930s Manchow. And Samuel plays the lead of a group of pedicab drivers who, when we open the film, the, his sort of crew are in a rivalry with another group of pedicab drivers. And do you think you're going into this film expecting it to be like a little light-hearted comedy, a little bit of uh, slapstick, but it actually goes a lot darker. And of course, I didn't realise this when I picked it for this month's selection, as I kind of remembered the first half and then must have forgotten about the second half because this film gets very dark as we're obviously going to uh, into when we obviously start looking at this film. But I mean, Stephen, I mean, am I right in saying this is the first time of you seeing Pedicab Driver? Yeah, it is. I haven't seen well. I haven't seen a lot of Sammo Hung films. Although, actually, when I was doing some reading, I probably have. <laughs> but um, you know, in in terms of sort of the big names, people like him and and Jackie Chan of that era of that sort of golden age of Hong Kong cinema, sort of late eighties, early nineties, I probably have seen less of his films. Um, certainly, lots of films where he's been like the action director. Or the, or the martial arts director on films, so sort of behind the scenes, but never actually seen him 
that I could remember lead a film. Certainly not this sort of young, fresh-faced version of Sammo Hung. Obviously, I remember him from Martial Law, which probably isn't the best thing <laughs> to, to, to remember some from. Um, and like you, I sat there and I thought, oh, this is nice. First, it's set in Macau, which is a, a different place, you know, the sort of the, the Portuguese version of Hong Kong. And I thought, yeah, OK, this is uh, this this just feels like, you know, the Golden Harvest symbol comes up at the beginning. I think, oh, OK, I know what I'm going to expect here. And... There's the opening fight sequence is really impressive, isn't it? And 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 then it sort of goes and wanders off in a couple of other little storylines. And, and then suddenly, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and like you say, it goes it goes dark pretty quick, and then goes a bit darker. And I think I, I find it hard to reconcile the the action romantic, you know talked about romantic comedies haven't we and there are two romantic storylines going on here and then one gets thrown away and the other one turns into something i wasn't expecting whatsoever yeah it's <laughs> this is uh certainly it's only an interesting movie i mean certainly in terms of the actual artist martial artistry in this film it's absolutely top notch and there's some really great fun stunt work in here as well as a performer, Sammo Hung is really on great performer here as well. I mean, let's just, I mean, just before we get into the dark aspects of this movie, I mean, let's just talk about the opening, really, of this film, because it's so well-timed, like, the the comedy. I mean, we've obviously got these two rival ritual factions, and they're arguing over who's going to cover what in the city, because they're basically struggling, they're fighting each other for the the work, and they basically come to the idea that one group is going to take uh, cargo and the other one's going to take passengers. And then if the customer's got both, it's going to be basically up to them to decide. And they all seem to be quite happy. And then, unfortunately, we have Eric Toussaint, who is like the restaurant owner who manages to inadvertently spark this huge brawl between them because he's trying to chase off a cat that's trying to steal his fish. So he comes charging up with meat cleaver and both sides assume that he's belongs to the other side and uh, sparks this huge brawl, which is really quite stunning to see when you see the complexity and the fact that you've got so many people fighting at the same time. And we have it mixed in with it, these like these comedy elements. We obviously have like someone hung battling with a pair of kettles. We have uh, two guys that take down fluorescent light tubes and have like a lightsaber battle before getting electrocuted. Um, and it's just really fast and frantic fun. I mean, this is even before we even mentioned the fact that Samuel Hung, who, as I said, he's, you know, he's probably well known for being this portly uh, martial artist who does this amazing leap over a barrier, which I didn't think he was capable of, like so many aspects of this film, but um, seeing him do the uh, hop over the barrier is it's quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's very famous for being an action star, and but, you know, he is not a sinewy little man like the, the gymnast, like I know, like a like a Bruce Lee or a Jackie Chan or a Jet Li. You know, he's, he's, he's a as, as as many Chinese films like say, so he's a fatty, isn't he? <laughs> um, but he's got buckets of charisma and personality, and so there's the there's this thing about seeing him do these jumps and leaps and 
amazing choreographed moves and he's got a bucket load of personality he just doesn't look like your traditional leading man does he no at all <coughs> no at all i mean he is obviously uh Cameron was one of the lucky stars i mean alongside jackie chan and he was really um through those sort of films films that he took became known i mean he him and like Jack Chan are really sort of responsible for sort of spearheading this revival and interest in like in uh, sort of like the Kung Fu movies, especially in like uh, when we look at like 1980s cinema, especially for films in like the Hong Kong New Wave. It's really sort of his films that are spearheading the way and really sort of bringing this interest. And it's surprising, I mean, the fact that he's been constantly working all this time. I mean, he's 66 and still pulling in major roles and I mean he's been a fight choreographer as you said already I mean he's been done uh fight choreographer for the likes of John Woo, Jack Chan, King Hugh and when you see him like films now like uh uh like SPL uh where he's going up against Donnie Yen and he's not lost a step he's still just as um just as good as he was in these movies and it's there's something about going back and seeing like these classic movies, uh, like this film, which really is kind of nice to see, just to see him when he's like in his absolute prime. Um, and it, you wouldn't think that a man of his stature is able to do half the things he's able to do, as as uh, we certainly see, like at the start and at the end of this this film. Um, it's just unfortunate we have this mid- dark middle section that you have to get through to. Uh, obviously get to the uh that wonderful showdown at the end yeah and also what i enjoy was some of the humor especially in the in the opening sequence so we spoke um when we were talking about stephen chow was it last episode episode before can't remember um and we talked about mole tao you know the, the the nonsense comedy but there's bits of that in here so in that opening sequence they get a couple of couple of guys face up against each other a couple of neon tubes clearly lightsabers clearly riffing on star wars which um i guess when's this film made 89 so yeah you know it's 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 a cultural thing over there as well and there's things like that and there's there's fun and laughter and as well as a lot of fighting going on it's always great to see eric xiang in in something and looking rather fresh and baby-faced himself um so that whole opening sequence was great. The uh, pole fight, that's the pole fight he has later on, and the gambling den is great, and the end sequence fighting is great. You know, I, I'm not a big action man, and even I'm impressed by what I was seeing. Yeah, uh, definitely the gambling house scene uh, where he's fighting uh, Largo Long. It's it's really uh, great to, to see that, and it's a shame really because we have this fight scene between between someone uh, as I said this this boss of this gambling debt and you think oh that's gonna come back because they have this he gives his whole speech about how low tongues end his respect and you think oh he's gonna come back at the finale he's gonna like back him up as he takes on this uh takes on this this the gangster who's obviously running this running the uh, brothel and of course it never gets brought up again which is really bizarre um especially as they make such a big thing of this this whole fight sequence uh well- but, well, I mean, that is a sort of a trademark of this era of Hong Kong cinema, full stop, where it clearly is being made up day by day. I mean, even even some of the outright classics like Once Upon a Time in China, Choi Hark has admitted, they just said, oh, what should we do today? 
let's go this way. So sometimes stories get diverted. There's not only that, there's that, that sequence seems to go nowhere. Samuel Hung's whole love story aspect. It seems to be going somewhere. In fact, it gets a really pretty blooming awkward when he's fighting over the girl with some old bloke. <laughs> I'm thinking she's too good for both of them, but you know, love is blind. And, um, and then, but that never goes anywhere as well. And they go back, they, they concentrate on, um, Max Mock's story, which is where it goes scarily dark. But yeah, so time and again, you think, ah, yes, I see what's got all these two storylines are going to come together. And they never really do. <laughs> it just, it feels very patchwork. But I always think that's part of the charm of, um, of this era of Hong Kong cinema. You know, it, it's about, the, the the brevity the the lack of money the 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 sheer turnover of amount of films people are making it just it creates something special that you can't repeat or capture and actually when all the money started coming in and and and, and the sort of the Chinese money is what made Hong Kong cinema almost kind of boring so yes it's a bit crazy yes you need to to accept the fact that some of these subplots are going nowhere but that's the charm yeah. And I mean, obviously, when we talk about the romantic element here, you mentioned already that we got some Hung uh, characters involved in this bizarre love triangle with uh, the elder baker, sort of the master baker next door, and they're both competing for the affections of um, of the our token sort of pretty girl here, uh, Pink, who's played by Nina Lee Chung. Oh, sorry, Nina Lee Chi. And at the same time, we've also got his best friend, Malted Candy, who, while he's obviously um, out doing his rounds, he runs into this girl and he falls absolutely head over heels in love with her. And she's played by Fanny Yun. And uh, basically, he knows nothing about her, but obviously later finds out that she's actually a prostitute. And we discover over the course of the film that she became a prostitute originally to pay off her father's medical bills, but her father ended up rejecting her because of what she's obviously done to get the money. And now she's basically trying to buy out her contract with this gangster who runs the local brothel. And he basically forms the whole, the big villain of the piece, even though he's he's almost comical in terms of how threatening he is as a villain. Um, he basically has the highest behind his, his henchmen who are probably more intimidating than he is. Uh, but the treatment and exploitation of women in this film is absolutely astounding. Um, and certainly not what you would expect when you, as you said, you first watch this, you think, oh, this is going to be a light-hearted comedy about warring pedicab drivers. But uh, no, it descends into this sort of almost statement about the exploitation of women. Um, in particular, uh, Fanny Young's sort of character and the fact that we have a scene where where they discover she's a prostitute and uh you got someone hung and his friends who are basically throwing whiskey at her and treating her like dirt because of what she is and the fact that the only one who stops her basically only stops her than throwing more drinks on her because the whiskey is too good and too expensive to be throwing on her like that which i thought was absolutely astounding yeah and but but then it kind of turns around so i mean this is only the first level of darkness yeah so we spent all this time 
in this sort of side plot where they're falling in love. You can know she's got a secret or something, but you know, it's quite nice, isn't it? And, and, and Max Mox, a sort of handsome fellow and Fanny Yun is, is gorgeous, isn't she? And, yeah. and you think, oh, this is kind of sweet. This, this, this summer hung love triangle is, is just weird. This is, this is lovely. And then, and then one of their mates says, I'm off to see a prostitute now. I'll be back later. <laughs> In in the least convincing, least suspenseful reveal of all time, he ends up having sex with with um, uh, Salchi, Salchi, um the, the 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 girlfriend of um, our other lead, and uh, and she does the whole pretty woman no kissing because you know that 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 makes it all right, um, and then they have this awful bit like you say when they all get together and they and they and all the truth comes out. And and they say horrendous things, but then they suddenly have this about face, don't they? Partly um partly prompted by Ping, sort of saying actually these this you know this woman's being abused, and 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 they sort of turn around, don't they? And they go and all become very um pro her and trying to rescue her. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing when I say it out loud, but uh, but then but that's only the first layer of darkness, because. <laughs> Because then they try and win her back by pretending um, Malted Candy's dead and throw her his corpse on her bed, <laughs> which, which is like, I think it's meant to be funny, but you lost all oh, my, my funny bone got taken away when 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 the whole prostitution thing came up, even though it wasn't a huge surprise. And then we fix it all and any other film would have ended then. But no, then, and spoilers, everybody, the, uh, the the gangster isn't very happy this girl is no longer a prostitute. So on their wedding day, he sends some knife men round to kill the pair of them, <laughs> which then leads to our climax. But my gosh, I was all that laughing about a cat eating a rat or a chicken or whatever it was at the beginning. And the and the, and the Star Wars jokes are long forgotten. <laughs> yeah, it's uh and it, it ends once we the dust finally settles and there's no one left for Samo to uh, beat up. It ends in that very traditional uh, Hong Kong way where you have to, you have to, you can't go around and kill people. Uh, you have to like serve you, serve your punishment. So they're all ready to hand themselves over to the police. If this was like a traditional Hollywood action movie, you know, bad guys vanquished, everyone walks off into the sunset, you know roll credits when we had look at like hong kong movies and you look at like uh bruce lee movies in particular very famous for doing this when we like look at uh fist of fury or game of death where he vanquishes the bad guy and then he either gets shot by the police or arrested by the police and these are the final shots of the movie and it's the same for this movie at the end they're getting ready to they're working out a way to hand themselves over to the police to sort of atone for their crimes you're thinking why are we Having the return, it's almost like taking away, you know, we vanquished evil, you know, job done, you know, bit celebration time, not, oh, we must like go and hand ourselves in now because we've got to got rid of this scumbag. It's always kind of jarring, but it's, it's a very sort of traditional mentality when you look at Hong Kong cinema. It always seems to be the way that you can't be a vigilante and not be punished for it at the same time. Yeah, which is always a bit odd when there's this world where there's these gangs running around with machetes, and this isn't the first Hong Kong film I've seen the sort of the knife gang go around. So that kind of exists, and that's a thing. But our heroes have to be purer than pure, and and they have to they have to receive 
justice. They, they, you know, you can't be a vigilante. You, you, you can't take these things into your own hands. Even though there's terrible stuff's going on, you'll have to go and do your time if, if you survive. Because half of them don't, do they? <laughs> in many of these films. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess that's to do with the religion. That's to do with karma. That's to do with Buddhism. Um, and, and then its impact on, on society there. And maybe it's to do with how films got censored and that they had to obey some of these rules that you couldn't have people getting away with, um, suffering, you know, just like our films in the fifties and sixties. Um, and, in in the West probably had a moralistic tone to them in their conclusions. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's obviously a, we, oh, in the beginning there, we obviously have uh, Eric Tucson who play, has this sort of brief sort of cameo as a restaurant owner. I mean, obviously we're considering Tucson's recent allegations since now being seen as the Harvey Weinstein of the East uh, for the large cat, catalogue of uh, misdemeanors that are now being brought against him i mean how do we obviously feel when we look at his work because to eliminate his work is going to essentially remove a large portion of of hong kong cinema um certainly he's appeared in so many films that i've absolutely adored um such as like infernal affairs hitman and it's so hard to obviously have this situation i mean do we view it in the case that we separate the artists from the art or do we sort of like look at them in much sort of darker light now? The fact that obviously he's now being convicted of, uh, of these crimes. Well, I mean, I don't think he's going to be the last one, <laughs> in, 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 you know, that also Hong Kong cinema is you know, famously known for, the mistreatment of its stars, the sexism, um, the fact that half it's run and funded by the triads. Um, this is not a pure than pure world. Um, if you take Eric Chang out of Hong Kong cinema, if we airbrush him out, I reckon there must be 200 plus films that it won't exist anymore. So I think, you know, this is a, this is heavy stuff for us, but uh, I think you have to, take the artist away from the act yeah what we you know what he's been accused of doing is is concerning and wrong and all those things but we shouldn't airbrush him from history mm. but it's a it's a it's a tough one um and obviously and that's a challenge that that western cinema is having at the moment and Kevin Spacey, for example, um, literally being airbrushed out of a film. But does that stop the usual suspects being, can you, can you, and I think you can take it away. And you can go back all the way, go back to Fatty Arbuckle back in the twenties, yeah? And things that he was accused of, and I can't remember if he was convicted for, you know, the Golden Age of Hollywood was full of scandal, yet we are able to watch the films, it, 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 with ignorance of that, aren't we? Yeah, and I think perhaps it's, we're saying when we look at like uh, the the sort of films and certainly like the pre-code era sort of cinema, uh, I don't know if it's easier because obviously the amount of time that's passed and changing attitudes. Uh, so the fact that obviously with Chaplin he had this series of child brides, yet we see Vera as being one of these greats of uh, silent 
silent film. Um, it's hard to say at the moment. I think it's because it's still so fresh. I mean, certainly it's in uh, messed up my own list of films that we potentially looked at. We're going to look at on this show um, because it's there's certainly a certain uneasiness about watching his cinema at the moment. Um, I think it's need to give it some time. Need to give it some time to breathe before I sort of look at something where he's more of a leading presence. I mean, it's fine here because obviously he's just more of a a cameo appearance, but certainly something where he's more of a leading role, something like an Infernal Affairs. I think it's probably going to take a little more time before I'm, I'm perhaps ready to revisit it at the minute. But we'll see. And let's be, you know, he hasn't actually been convicted of anything. <laughs> no. I don't want I don't want to sound like President Trump about this, but these these are these are accusations. Um, there is an investigation, but you know, smoke, fire. And all that. Just just about to say, I mean, it's something that's been in the background for years now, and a lot of people have basically speculated the fact that he's always been kind of protected uh, because of perhaps the triad influence, Um, and that is because his father was a cop, and there's apparently he's uh, got all these different levels of protection, and that basically kept it covered up for years. But I think, as we talked about in the previous one, I think no one in no one in uh, Hong Kong cinemas without scandal, even if they may perhaps seem like more of a squeaky clean uh, persona to us Western audiences. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's he- he- heavy stuff, but um, I personally will separate it. But I totally get that we might not be covering election or infernal affairs for a while. <laughs> I mean, is there anything else that sort of stood out for you in this one? I mean, obviously it's... It's a weird movie to sort of recommend. I mean, this is one of those sort of standout movies, uh, especially in terms of martial arts cinema, especially Kung Fu cinema, that sort of stands out. Because, I mean, this is one of my gateway films. I mean, this was released over here in the UK under the Made in Hong Kong uh, VHS label. And since then, it's I believe it's available uh, as a, a disc on demand uh, in the States. But it remains one of those lesser seen movies despite it obviously having all these key elements so certainly for Samuel Hunt's career um, it's one of his best and it's surprising the fact that it's not uh, ever received sort of like the same sort of treatment of his other films like uh, Close Encounters of Spooky Kind or Eastern Condors yeah it's interesting because I mean I, I'd heard of it I hadn't seen it but then you know we, we talked about that at the beginning but it's really entertaining I mean Yes, it's a film with two halves. Yes, actually, a bit of it's a bit boring. Sort of the middle third's a bit yeah. boring, and then it gets dark. But you know, it's an absolute brilliant example of Hong Kong cinema at you know what a lot of people, including myself, called its golden age. Um, and not only that, it's um, you know, it's it's a pretty darn good film. Um, it's on loads of and, and and in terms of the martial arts, I think those three martial arts sequences are, are held up in high regard. It's on a lot of critics' best action film list, isn't it? Um, it, it it's really odd that it actually has had a really checkered, bitty history in terms of its release. When you think of all the other films that have got released, you'd have thought this would have been up there. Um, yeah. It is available on. I, I, I found a copy of it on. Uh, on Amazon, more than one copy. So you know that there are copies available, but it's um, 
it's it's a strange one because and I am surprised I hadn't seen it actually because it's it's clearly a superior product. I really enjoyed it, so thank you as ever for for bringing it up. But uh, it's it, it's odd that it's so unavailable. Yeah, I mean maybe uh, someone out there can shed some light on it. I mean it's, at the same time maybe explain why we still haven't got Snowpiercer here in the UK despite it being over in the states for. God knows how long now. And still losing. Uh, hopefully, we're ever going to see Snowpiercer in the UK. But and you'll keep saying that every episode. And yeah. One day, one day. I'm going to keep saying it until it happens. <laughs> <laughs> one day it'll happen, and, and we'll we'll feel lost. <laughs> we'll, we'll find something else to. Indeed. To oh no, oh my at that point. Oh my God! There's films upon films that are, that are probably like that. But yes, absolutely. That, that I I was hoping with Okja that at least Netflix, the UK would put it out there. But no. I still need to see uh, Okja. Um, it's like everything on on Netflix you, because it's there. Especially if it's in Netflix production, you don't tend to prioritize it over other things. You tend to just. Uh, yeah, attention gets drawn elsewhere, and I think I need to really make it a priority before the next episode to try and sit down and watch it, or failing that, make it a pick on a future episode, just to uh, just so I can finally uh, finally cross it off the list. But um, yeah, um, any sort of final thoughts on this one? No, not really. Just it's it's, it's well worth hunting down. I mean, I know I've been probably a little vocal about uh, yeah. how it turned out but um no I, I think it's uh i think it's an excellent example of sort of late 80s early 90s uh no well, a, sort of 90s hong kong cinema and well worth a little bit of anybody's time yeah i totally um, agree i mean it just if just for the opening and end fight scenes is worth watching for those i mean there's a really great chase sequence where uh, someone's basically trying to outrun a gangster's car on his uh, pedicab <laughs> and uh, that's got some really interesting stunt elements to it which uh, makes it really really fun I mean some of the romance elements are fun but as I said at the same time you also have those darker elements as well uh, which is kind of a little jarring especially seeing how the film starts And uh, but it's uh certainly the action scenes make it what certainly all the well uh all the more worthwhile checking out um but further watching i mean where do you go from here i mean it's uh something you would want to pair this up with um well i was thinking um where else have i what other films have i seen samo hung in <laughs> and um of course i was forgetting um Mills on Wheels. Okay. Which have you? Uh, are you aware of that one? Yeah, we uh, brought it up on the on the last episode. We uh, paired it up with uh, Got a Cookery. Well, I'm going to pair it with <laughs> this because I was um I was just I was just thinking that's a uh, that one you've got you've got Jackie and Samo in and it's and also Yum Biao, haven't you? Yeah, Who's definitely. Probably so probably the the three of them because I was I was struggling and now I feel a fool that you paired it last time but <laughs> I think that just means it's a must go see film. <laughs> For myself, I mean, I really wanted to pair it up with one of his more modern films because I know there's certainly other films around this period uh, such as like Millionaire's Express or 
person who counts as spooky kind, magnificent butcher, that we could obviously pair it with and be absolutely fantastic. But at the same time, I have a feeling that I obviously want to look at them in more detail on future sort of shows, and I don't want to sort of remove them from the running in that respect. So um, I wanted to obviously pair it with something a bit more modern, and uh, I'm going to basically pair it with a film which I mentioned earlier in this episode, and that would be Killzone, uh, which is uh, directed by Wilson Yip, and it's also known as SPO, Sharpo Lang. And this is interesting, not only because it's wrong playing a villain, uh, at this point it was like the first time in around 25 years that he had played a villain, but it also features him going against uh, Donnie Yen, who I would say at the moment is probably one of the most exciting martial artists out there, especially with, uh, when you look at films like Killzone, where he's combining MMA styling. Um, yes, perhaps he is losing something when he's doing his Western films at the moment, such as like Triple X Return of Xander Cage, which I thought was kind of wasted in. But in Killzone, he's absolutely fantastic as a as this villainous gangster. And certainly the end fight scene between him and Donnie Yen shows that despite the fact he's now 66, the guy has not lost a step. He's still absolutely fantastic. And certainly when you see him in like Ip Man 2, again with Donnie Yen, it's Really fantastic to seeing what he's still capable of. Um, whereas other like martial arts people such as like Jet Li, Jackie Chan seem to have like perhaps lost um, their way slightly, or perhaps not willing to put themselves their sort of body on the line as much as they were when they were younger. Um, Summer Hung's still there; he's still doing interesting things and still proving that he can kick a whole lot of ass, despite the fact he's in his later years now and. Uh, still carrying his sort of trademark weight around. Yeah, I've got to agree. I mean, that's a great film. And if you want to put, talk about dark endings, <laughs> <laughs> that one's got two of its own as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a film that was introduced uh, to by uh, Kim uh, of uh, Game War Fame, and who was obviously on our last episode. Um, she she uh, introduced me to that one. And yeah, that ending is just absolutely astounding. I'm not even going to ruin it for you, but just a bit. The ending alone is just absolutely fantastic. Probably quite unlike anything you've seen, especially in this sort of movie. But uh, yeah, it's an absolutely fun, uh, fun little uh, action film and definitely one worth checking out. Excellent. Excellent film. Good choice. Um, on the next episode is obviously your turn to pick, Stephen. So where would you like to go for our next episode? Well, I'm going to move from Macau back to Hong Kong. Um, and I don't think we've talked about a Shaw Brothers film yet. So I want to go for my favourite martial arts film of all time, Come a Drink With Me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Come Drink With Me, it's, I mean, as you said, I mean, this is one of the legendary Shaw productions. Um, I mean, it stars uh, Chope Pei, uh, certainly one of, again, a key lady in Hong Kong uh, action cinema. And uh, I think, yeah, it's definitely what I'm saying, looking forward to discussing. I mean, it's certainly one of the few Shaw Brothers movies to make into the 1001 movies to, be put, to see before you die. I think when we look at the Shaw Brothers movies, I mean, the Shaw Brothers back catalogue is just so varied and interesting. I think you could do a, a podcast just looking at episodes and looking at films from their back catalogue. And, uh, yeah, certainly Come Drink With Me is uh, an interesting one, to say the least. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not Mr. Mr. Martial Arts, so if I like it, it's got to be special. <laughs> cool. Um, obviously, in the meantime, if people uh, do want to find your words, the best place to find you as always. You can find me on Twitter at at LPVO. You can sometimes see what I'm writing at my uh, website at guelo-ramblings.wordpress.com, although I'm still being very bad at keeping that up to date. And I will have some new content up at East kicks.com um, very soon where in the next month you should see start seeing some stuff around the wonderful Bridget Lynn which I'll be writing cool um, as for myself it's obviously uh, from the depths of the I'm also still over at thatmomentin.com um, as I said if you want to uh, catch our back catalogue you uh, can do it's uh, now all over at thatmomentin.com you can also listen to us on Podomatic and iTunes and basically anywhere good podcasts can be found. So uh, definitely do make sure that you uh, leave us a like or hit that subscribe button. It all certainly helps. Uh, we are also on Twitter, which is AC Film Club. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just type in Asian Cinema Film Club. And uh, just let us know what you think of these episodes. And then share uh, your thoughts on Asian Cinema. Leave us some recommendations. I mean, we do... Regularly post on their interesting bits of Asian cinema and Asian culture-related news pieces. So uh, there's definitely always something to uh, check out on there as well. Um, but as always, I'd like to thank my co Stephen for joining me again. Thank you as ever for having me. And uh, we will be back uh, next time when we look at King Q's Come Drink With Me. Good night. Kinono